Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. And isn't that a minor miracle? The state of the world today, the level of conflict and misunderstanding that two men could stand on a lonely road in winter and talk calmly and rationally while all around them people were losing their mind. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. All right, Dave. Let's say you have the DeLorean from Back to the Future. <laughs> and you go back in time to the late 1800s when Hitler's about to be born. Now, do you program the DeLorean so that it will automatically swerve into Hitler's mom's <laughs> horse carriage on her way to the delivery room or whatever the Germans had then? <laughs> In order to save five other Germans who would otherwise be hit. Was, is, is one of the five Himmler? <laughs> it's a German. Like, what more do you need to know? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the correct answer is, is all, all, always kill baby Hitler. I don't, I, I think, okay, so I think everything is misguided. I think that the only right answer is, fuck it, you always kill baby Hitler. All right, well, hold on. Before we get to that, so we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about robot cars. That was my way of trying to incorporate both of them. (laughs) Uh, These are two articles, well, two topics that multiple listeners sent to us, posted to our Facebook page and uh, tweeted us. And so we decided to devote the opening segment to talking about this. For the second segment and the third, we have Eric Schwitzgibble joining us to discuss the morality of ethicists. Before we get to the morality of ethicists, let's engage in a little ethical debate of our own. Let's start with Hitler. They always say that every ethical debate ends up invoking Hitler and the Nazis at some point. So we'll just skip. Yeah, skip this is right Godwin's rule on the internet um, <laughs> that it's automatically it should end with it, the minute anybody gets. So let's let's get to the to the just armpit of internet discussion. <laughs> so this is, I guess, the New York Times tweeted out. Would you a survey? Right, a survey. Would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler and? That inspired the imagination of the American people. I think it got uh, a ton of response. So let me ask you, what do you do with baby Hitler? You go back there. You, I Probably you just want to give him like a high five. <laughs> Candy. My, my idea is you go back. You go back in time. Not, 
<laughs> not to baby Hitler, but to pubescent Hitler and have a really hot Jewish girl just break him off. So you think, <laughs> think that his is, problem was that he couldn't have sex with Jewish girls? A problem? Uh, subsequent no, no, no. I don't think it was the problem, but it was certainly a solution to whatever the problem might have been. It could be a solution to what whatever. Kind of this is the most ethical. Like a, this is the most like making him just have some affection. You know, the same affection I have for for the Hebrew people. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think he already had that. Uh, <laughs> um, I think so. Okay, but accept the accept the assumptions. the The DeLorean only takes you to whatever eighteen ninety eight infant baby Hitler. Yeah. There's a good. There's there's a few articles that we got sent. Good links. Uh, one really really misguided discussion about like genes versus environment or whatever. But like this let's is just the one assume, on Forbes, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's right. It, <clears throat> But uh, but assume assume you know baby Hitler um, will in fact if if alive history will run its course right, right. I think that's the assumption well, that everybody's willing assume to make that because yeah. that's what happens that's just well, the whole point exactly um, that's and that's what that other article doesn't get right like uh, like don't oh. kill him because he could have had a different environment but he didn't he like if we don't right. kill him like right. and you're not making any strong assumptions about genetic determinism <laughs> just no by no <laughs> just, just like. <laughs> You're just saying like, if your only option is kill or not kill, then, you know, like I, I love like, this give one. Him, we'll, give him a chance. We'll link <laughs> to this shot. because it's like it, it gets into some technical things about like uh, gene expression. And it's like, yeah, no, that's completely irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's his like, genes it's like, with his environment led to him, you know, leading the Third Reich. I mean, I, I think the one point you could take from that is that maybe one thing, and this was, I think, what you did with your Jewish girl example, change his environment could lead yeah. to a massive change in his character if it's an important enough shift in his environment. The other issue is, look, maybe it was Hitler because it was nobody else. But if you take, you know, you get rid of Hitler, put him out of the way. And there's another person that's going to do more or less the same right thing. but let's assume that it is either kill like you have literally one decision just enough time to make the decision pop into 1898 you either kill infant hitler or not like because obviously like if you could raise him into a good person you know you stick around and become a you know turn of the century german you know obviously that would be better than killing him but just assuming that you know you have like one bullet um yeah. you pop in for like three seconds kill or no kill Right. And so there are all these problems, but I, I still think I'm not I still think that given everything we know, I'm willing to take the chance that shit would have gotten messier um, just from what I know about how things did. Right. End how up. bad it was. <laughs> I mean, I think this is what. So from the consequentialist point of view, you have to think the world would have been happy, like a happier, better place had he not risen to power. Now, the. It might be like, well, obviously it's a Holocaust, but, you know, who knows what happens in Europe if there's no World War II that we win that somewhat stabilizes through the Cold War period. Right. But moreover, for all we know, the original Holocaust killed one million Jews and someone went back in time and killed the original dictator and Hitler rose to power. We have no way of knowing whether that happened. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> but these are the things you have to play the odds. And the Holocaust yeah. was bad enough that I would just roll the dice. You know, yeah, me too. I, I just... mean, and that's the decision that any consequentialist has to make for any decision. Right. 
where they're like, yeah, man, I mean, if I, right. And that's, I think the Vox article does a nice job of illustrating that that problem, but this, this is why I don't think it's a deep mystery though. I think I just, I just kill baby Hitler. Yeah. You do it (laughs) and you cross your fingers, hope for the best. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. At least make it slight, you know, the chances that I'm making it slightly harder for the Holocaust to occur. I think I'm then, then making it slightly easier for the Holocaust or, or, you know, I, I'm willing to take those chances. Now, what about though? Do you not exist if that happens? Probably not. Probably, well, certainly probably I don't exist. Maybe not. Or maybe not you as you know it. Maybe some sort of like... Like uh, like better version of me, maybe? <laughs> I, I like to think that most parallel universes are, are populated with better versions of you. I got fucking this one. <laughs> A gay version of me, maybe. <laughs> All right. Um, have we? Did we solve that problem? I I I think that that we have solved the problem. I don't know why it's that big of a problem. I think people just get thrown off because it's a baby. I'm like fuck it, it's a baby. It's easier. Yeah, although it's not as an actually look like a baby Hitler. It's not going to have. <laughs> he doesn't have like a little mustache, a swastika in his forehead, <laughs> Charles Manson style. Forgot to say the one thing about baby Hitler that will spare you the pain of killing a baby. And will make, you know, Germany a flourishing place of peace, love and harmony. All you have to do, and this will take a little more time, is remove all the sauerkraut. (laughs) This is empirically an empirically verified strategy. It turns out sauerkraut has been priming. (laughs) But there was a paper on uh, moral self-licensing that sauerkraut uh, contributes to Nazi-esque right-wing ideology. more than drinking either nothing or a, a less healthy beverage. Yeah, because 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 they control for everything there, like the shitty bitter taste, <laughs> the sour taste. Of that. Next topic: autonomous cars and how to program them. So th- this comes from a paper. There was an article, but also a paper called "Autonomous Vehicles Need Experimental Ethics." Are we ready for utilitarian cars? And the premise of this paper is that we need to develop an algorithmic morality in order to program our autonomous cars to do the morally correct thing. In order to arrive at this algorithmic morality, we have to run the same sorts of studies that you guys mostly have been running for the last 10, 15 years, trolley problems. So more trolley problems in order to generate the moral principles that we then program into our autonomous. It's a pretty straightforward finding. People want other people's cars to be utilitarian because if you, you know, if you give a dilemma, like there's three, there's three people on a narrow bridge and your car, it's rainy. They popped out of nowhere. By the way, I saw a girl get hit in at Cornell, like right in front of me, and I like had to grab her and take her to the hospital and, and file a police report. It's kind of nasty. Um, <clears throat> but so 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 you have three people on the bridge. Your car is driving. All of a sudden, these people pop out. Uh, slick road. The com- the computer in the car can do all of these calculations really quickly, like distance to the people. You know how how good it's going to be able to break. Uh, how how much damage is going to be done to the people if, of that size if it does hit them at that speed 
and realizes that there's no way to save the life of those three human beings other than to swerve you off of the bridge. Well, like, I think straightforwardly, we like we want a utilitarian car if we're one of the three people on the bridge, but we don't want to buy a utilitarian car. Right. That's like that's that's the finding. Well, and also like you like you were saying earlier when we brought this up about like, well, what if your child is in your car? Right. Do you, right. Do you want the car to be sacrificing your child? Look, I have this. I have similar problems with this that I do to the trolley problems in general, which is and I don't know what the data is on this, but how realistic is it that the car will have all of this information so it it knows that it will not only hit those people but kill those people or do or injure those people or and what will it do if it if if you hit the wall what will you know how much will you be hurt all those calculations i think they're trivially easy out so so neatly i don't i think it's trivially easy so you it's i think a computer does this in a split second right it it has uh, a notion of its we know at what speed um you're going to crush bones we know the angle at which you're it knows the angle know at which it's going to hit the people are going to do you don't know like yes the people it's a narrow bridge to, to move out well okay but that you how, do that will never but, happen that will never happen uh, that's something. so not true that's so not true there are all kinds of situations in which the car will not if it's a say a group of people the car will not have time uh it, to to calculate this like I mean, sorry, the car will not have time to stop um, without the high chance of killing somebody there. So the people might jump out of the way. The car has no uh, the car no, has no, no way of knowing whether the people are going to uh, look back behind them and see the people, a car. If the people jumped jumped out into the street like this girl did, for instance, right before, like the girl that I saw get hit, she literally just wasn't looking. There was a car blocking her view. And she walked right out in front of this other car, right? So there's no way she could have reacted. And so, but it's okay. Even if it, if it barely ever happens, you, you have to have some rule that you program in, right? And wouldn't you want to know what rule your car has programmed in on the off chance that the calculation actually has to be made? I, I, I yeah, no, I don't know what the, the rule is. If the well, rule is, I, 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 what I, I just, it I, has to do something. It has to try to avoid getting into accidents. And I guess here's one thing I would buy that it might be in a situation where it could like, you know, you're on a highway and if you don't pull off and do something that will more than likely kill you, you'll cause like a major pileup in the in in the well, rest of the highway. That's very likely to kill a bunch of people like something where it's that sort of. Have you ever killed a deer or have you ever hit a deer? Uh, no. Okay, so I haven't either, but I've had tons of deer and like so many people I know have. Usually it's you're, you slam on your brakes and here's what you don't do. What you don't do is swerve, especially like in the, in the winter and stuff. Like people die all the time from swerving and hitting a tree and because that was their immediate reaction. So you don't want your, your, your self-driving car to, you want it to be smart. You want it to like calculate the best angle at hitting the deer and not give a fuck that it's a deer. You want it to save your life. If it's a human who popped out all of a sudden now, you know, you have to make an, and it popped out literally with no time for the human being to react. It's going to like whether or not the frequency 
you know, if millions of these cars are on the road, the frequency might be low. But the point is that you have to have something you get programmed into the car to act in that in under those conditions. And I bet so you that if you know had two brands. Of- All right. Look, let's say I grant that I, I have my doubts, but let's say I grant that I I, 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 the second issue I have with this paper is this idea that we need trolley problem to run variations of trolley problems in order to figure out what our intuitions are. Well, yeah, and that's what I started. That, that's the objection I started with, which I, I don't know what it adds to run to run. Tro- I mean, you can ask people what kind of car, what kind of decisions they they want to make in in these situations, but I don't think that trolley problems is getting getting you anywhere. I mean, well, I think they they view it as if they, you know, in the same way that like McHale, John McHale or whatever, that, that they're going they're going to arrive at the truth of what our bedrock moral intuitions are about these kinds of cases and then use that information to then program into the cars. Maybe yeah. Using some sort of government regulation. And see, this is the thing. This is the kind of decision where I say it has to be a policy decision that's made these decisions are made all the time. It's just not, it, it's not so salient to us. Um, the nature of the moral decisions being made, but, but, um, car manufacturers, for instance, have to decide how much money to put into the safety features of the car. And they know that if they put like this really fancy kind of, of seat belt, it will actually save a thousand more people a year. Um, but, but they can't afford, you know, they're cutting costs in the car. And so they put a, a cheaper seatbelt and it actually is killing a thousand people a year. We don't, the, the sad thing is that it's now it becomes like evident, you know, somebody can just look at the source code and see like, shit, I got a fucking utilitarian car. Like I want it to favor my family or my race, or as you would say. And you know, there's going to be some <laughs> variation of the Volkswagen, you know, like thing. Where <laughs> yeah, we they, they program it, you know, they say it's a utilitarian car, but actually it's, it'll save the owner and you try to. I Don't you think though, that if they made a car that was like, look, the purpose of this car is to protect the people in the car at all costs in a dilemma-like situation where it really is a dilemma, it's going to choose to protect you, not the pedestrians. Um, yeah, that's why it needs to be a policy thing because I think people would buy the car that's going to be... Is, and, 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 you know, they can think of it, they can rationalize it in a bunch of different ways, but the most common way will be to protect my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You can already see the Republican strategy there for why Google is evil. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I, well, hopefully I'll get in the Johnny cab that doesn't try to kill me in order you to save. Get, you want to, I want, I want to program Bob Frank, like pre-commitment emotions into my, into my own car. Maybe I could like hack into it and, and have it be like, David, I love you. I would do anything for you. Just be with me. Who <laughs> do you want me to take out? Whose office do you want? <laughs> It was like slowly be measuring all of your reactions to different people, you know, and just, or like, you know, I want my car to know that it's, it's like my friend in like it's Tamler in my passenger seat and not my daughter. So that if it has to swerve in a way that like gets the truck to hit the passenger seat, like right. it hit, you know, like, right. and spared th- your daughter, th- almost literally throwing you under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> it can rank order. It could take Facebook. And it could weight the connections between your friends. And it can right. always, you know, you can log into the car on Facebook 
And it can always choose the person that, you know, you have the most you've correspondence liked, with. You've, or done you've, more, like, you've liked their <laughs> posts the most. Yeah. I'm going to start posting more. You know, like, there's a daughter. certain kind of post where you're guaranteed to get a bunch of likes. There's uh, a... I'm going to start doing that. Those, you know, like, uh, I'll, do, I'll do those, like, you know, the ones that you love, the sanctimonious ones. I can't yeah. believe that Donald Trump <laughs> said that about immigrants. <laughs> yes. The ones, the ones that are um, making a moral, morally correct claim. Um, the problem is Facebook would all of a sudden create a bunch of cars that would never hit a cat. So all these people would be dying. Like, because of, <laughs> and the cat population would get out of control. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. On that note, um, if you want to hear more illuminating discussions like the ones that we've just had and uh, solving the world's problems, consider supporting us. Support us by going to verybadwizards.com, clicking on the support page, um, and either clicking on the Amazon link and then shopping at Amazon as you otherwise would, or just donating to us directly via PayPal. And we thank all the people who have done that and uh, all the people who help us out on Amazon. And you can tweet us at VeryBadWizards, at Tamler, at Peas. You can email us at VeryBadWizards at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail. Um, we have to change the outgoing message. I think it's still geared towards that 75th episode. But you can like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. They put us in a good mood uh, when we're down. And Yeah, so p- thanks for all your support. Thanks for interacting with us. And we will be right back with Eric Schwitzgibble. And isn't that a minor miracle? That two men could talk calmly and rationally while all around them people were losing their mind. So how they burn through the journal. David, our guest today might be almost as much of a cont hater as I am. Are you worried that we're going to use you as a mere means? That actually sounds appealing. You know, this is this will be interesting because maybe, maybe, just maybe, it'll come out that I'm not a fucking content to begin with. Um, <laughs> Finally, but you know, we'll we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. How, uh, but why don't you introduce our guest, who is from the fine city, by the way, of Riverside, where I grew up. Oh, you grew up in Riverside. I didn't know that. Yeah, cool. I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's we a can fine city. It. It's an underrated city. City, you, you can see the air. goddammit. <laughs> not as much anymore. It's really cleared up. Uh, so it's Eric Schwitzgibble um, from the University of California Riverside in the philosophy department. There, people always say that you know their interests are wide ranging, but it's actually very, very true with you. 
your interests span all over the map. Metaphysics, philosophy of mind um, is, I guess, your AOS, if, if we had to pick one, but then also ethics. And lately you've been giving talks at NASA. <laughs> That's right. I, I talked heard. to uh, – I consulted with NASA about uh, moral treatment of space aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Are we – so, <laughs> wait, wait, so wait, tell wait, us wait, just wait, really what? quickly about that. <laughs> Is that sort? Of, do we have a few like kind of locked up? Is this a paying? Is this a paying gig? <laughs> no, they flew me out. There. They, just... they, they paid for my travel, but they didn't. Uh, they didn't get like a nice a... black limo for the uh, for the ride back to the airport, though. I felt important. <laughs> nice. Is there some sort of like Guantanamo out near <laughs> Neptune or something that we're holding a bunch of space aliens? Well, I sure hope not. You know, because I argued yeah. that that would be unethical. Yeah, I, I figured they would bring the different aliens out one by one, and then you would say, "Yeah, nah, like, uh, yeah, nah." <laughs> no, so what? Actually, give that one my number. So NASA has this outreach program. <laughs> they're trying to connect more with the arts and the humanities and the social sciences, and so they've invited people. They invited people out to Washington D.C. in groups. I took that opportunity to think about what I would want to talk to NASA about, uh, and I thought the most interesting. Thing to talk with them about from my perspective would be um, what kind of moral obligations we would have to life if we discovered it. Of course, space aliens, you know, in the kind of like intelligent aliens are less likely perhaps for us to discover than uh, microbial life. But then I think there are lots of interesting issues uh, about the ethics of our potential interaction with micro microbial life if we discover it, discover it on Mars or Europa or wherever. Um, what kinds of procedures or ethics should there be for for dealing with with those types of discoveries. Wait, we can't just like s kill microbes because <laughs> they're in space. Well, why were why would space microbes be any different than the ones here, other than just scientific curiosity? I guess I'm inclined to think that it would be not a good thing, say, if we discovered a small patch of microbial life on Mars and then we did something that made it go extinct. You know, it, that's super erogatory. <laughs> You're going above and beyond with the Martian microbes, I think, if you don't step on them. <laughs> yeah. What if they evolve into some? What if they evolve into a race that just destroys us eventually? You know, then then it'll be your fault. I feel. It's. So, I, I think I'm like detecting a human, a pro-human bias in your remarks. Save the <laughs> microbes. Is there like some sort of Greenpeace organization? You know, for the, for the microbes. Um. Not that I'm aware of, but I do think actually NASA takes uh, takes these kinds of issues pretty seriously. They're very worried, for example, about um, microbial contamination between planets. So if you're going to send up uh, a probe uh, yeah. to Mars, you've got to get it sterilized. And it's really – they have very strict standards of sterilization. And they've been working on plans for if we transport material back from Mars, how do we confirm that it does not have uh, microbes on it that might then contaminate Earth? And there are a variety of reasons that they uh, want these standards, um, many of them prudential. That tends to be their emphasis, right? Like uh, we, we, want, we want to make sure that we don't, you know, contaminate Earth with something that's going to kill us. Or, uh, we don't want to think we discovered life, but it's really just stuff we brought over, right? So make sure it's really clean. Before, right. Right. So they've got all these prudential reasons, but I think moral reasons are also part of the picture. So are you a vegetarian? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you just wouldn't eat uh, – animals from mars okay so speaking, maybe we should that, move <laughs> speaking of that let's talk about the moral behavior of ethicists or lack thereof this was something that you have been working on for the last six years and in fact 
I used to get emails that I immediately thought were just you <laughs> testing my ethical <laughs> how ethical I was or this was before I even I met you. Um, I would forward you them and say like nice try. I'm not, not falling for it. And you would always insist that it wasn't you, but you can tell me now. Were any you of must those continue you? the experiment. I don't know if you are on any of our email lists, actually. So the um, the lists. Were so encrypted. explain what you did and why. All right. So we, I guess we can start with the email study. I should say I did this one uh, with Joshua Rust. Much of my work on this was collaboratively with uh, Josh Rust at Stetson. Yeah. So with the email study, what we did was we sent a number of emails that were designed to look as though they were from undergraduates to philosophers specializing in ethics and uh, philosophers not specializing in ethics as one comparison group and then other professors at the same universities as a second comparison group. And uh, we were interested in the rates at which the members of these different groups replied to these emails. Now, what was the content the, what did, of this, these emails? <laughs> like, increase your size by three inches. So, one of them, the one that got double, the one that got the highest response rate, which was in the ballpark of the low sixties, I think, uh, sixty low sixty percent, um, was one that was from Katie Sanchez, and it was sent during the summer uh, before the fall term was due to start. And it said, Dear Professor, and then we inserted the professor's name. And it said something like, I'm just going to paraphrase here, I'm um, enrolled in your fall course. And then we inserted the name of the lowest level course that they were scheduled to teach in the fall. Um, But I'm not going to be able to make the first two or maybe three class meetings due to a family uh, emergency. I'm wondering if that would be okay. Uh, Is there something I could do or should I maybe I take a different class instead? Uh, Sincerely, Katie Sanchez. So, So something like that. Right. So our sense. Come to my office. <laughs> we can work something. I, I, I really, I really hope that you coded what the response was. <laughs> Did you just send a hundred emails to Colin McGinn? Be honest. Be honest. <laughs> Sorry, you can edit that out. I don't want to implicate anybody else in my shit talking. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, whenever you say edit it out, according to one of our listeners, I keep it in. So. <laughs> They might have a biased sample. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so those were 60% response? Yeah, the response rates for those, I think, were in the low 60%. Um, that's a good one because that's one I, unlike some of the other ones that you use, that's one that I think you ought to respond to. Right. So we had the, the first, so that was we sent three different emails, and that was one of the three. Um, the other ones had lower response rates and... Um, arguably less compelling case for responding. Um, so uh, what were the results? Did ethics professors get back at a much higher rate because they had run their <laughs> like the arguments? <laughs> yeah, we found no statistically detectable difference in the response rates among the three groups. I'm sorry, sorry, was ethicists? You said philosopher, non-ethicist, then what was the third group? Other professors at the same universities. What got you started in asking this question to begin with? So this is certainly what I know you from. This is how I first heard uh, your name it was from from this work. And, and we could talk about some of the other sets of data. But my favorite by far is because it's from the twisted mind of social psychology almost is is the library <laughs> return rates for books about ethics. Yeah, that was the first which one. Which is just great. Yeah. 
you know, I got started in it from um, reading classical Chinese philosophy. There's this debate in ancient China between Mencius or Mengzi and uh, Shunzi. And Mencius says human nature is good, and Shunzi says human nature is bad. And it's an interesting question, interpretive question in classical Chinese philosophy, what exactly they mean by that. But I think one way of, of reading what Mengzi means when he says human nature is good is that if you stop and you think about what you're doing, if you pause and you reflect, you will find in yourself some inclination to do what's morally good, some attraction to what's morally good, and some uh, revulsion at the thought of what's doing uh, of doing what's morally wrong. Now, you might not act on those, but you'll have those basic, like the thought if 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 the thought of stealing someone's umbrella when it's raining outside is just so you won't get wet should make you feel a little yucky if you stop stop and think about it, right? And the, the thought of helping someone, you know, give someone a lift, uh, you know, giving them a ride when they really need one, you know, that should give you a positive feeling, right? Those kinds of things, uh, Mencius thinks, Mengzi thinks, are universal in humans, uh, and that if you think and you reflect on those basic reactions he thinks we all have, then you'll start finding yourself acting on them, and then this will lead to increased moral development. Shunza says, no, our basic universal desires are selfish. They're for things like sex and money and pleasure and you know all that good food and all that kind of stuff, and it really is a, a matter of an artificial cultural creation, this ethical system. And so you kind of have to force yourself to be moral. It doesn't come naturally. You have to kind of submit yourself to the instruction of a teacher and then very by long, slow, hard practice, you come eventually to want to uh, follow moral norms. But it's not – there's nothing in your heart from the beginning that's pleased by morality and revolted by immorality. So this is this great, wonderful debate and they're both pretty uh, philosophically and psychologically sophisticated in articulating these theses. These theses. So this is essentially the republic – but in ancient Chinese philosophy. Yeah, I actually like the ancient Chinese version better than uh, any of the Western versions of this debate. Right? There's also a kind of similar debate between Hobbes and Rousseau. So, so I have a question actually about these views. Yeah. Is it so both of them seem to both of them seem to make the same empirical prediction, which is whenever somebody acts morally, it's because they've had to reflect. Yeah. No, not quite. So. Hmm. It's got, it's complicated because they both think reflection has a role, but they think it plays a different kind of different kind of role in the two cases. Right? Could the training be something that once you've undergone the training, it then happens in a way that you don't have to reflect? Yes. In order to get yourself to act, right? Is that the idea? Absolutely. Yeah. So they both want that at the end, where you have a spontaneous tendency to. Uh, act morally. And there's this wonderful fragment from, they're both Confucians. There's this wonderful fragment from Confucius, uh, the Analects 2.4, where he, he gives a little very condensed autobiography. And it starts at 15, I set my heart on learning. And then he talks a little bit about age 30, 40, 50, 60. And then at age 70, uh, he could follow his heart's desire without overstepping the bounds of propriety. So by the time you're fully morally developed, it might take 55 years, right? <laughs> then you just have no desire to do anything other than what's morally right. And it just comes to you completely spontaneously, right? I, you know, I might be in a rush, but I just have no desire to run over that pedestrian in the crosswalk. It just doesn't like even occur to me that that would be an option. And if it did, I'd be revolted, right? You know, that's the kind of reaction uh, well-developed Confucian should have to any kind of potentially immoral behavior. I think by the time you're 70, you just don't have energy for shit. 
Right. Well, you know. I was <laughs> like, oh, fuck it. I don't want to do the bad thing, but I don't want to do anything. It just happens. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I thought that Metris and Shunza would make different predictions about moral development and moral psychology and the conditions under which we engage in moral and immoral practices, right? So Mengzi might uh, predict that people who are encouraged to reflect or people who are dispositionally inclined to do a lot of reflection would, uh, maybe especially philosophical reflection, would uh, engage in less immoral behavior. Um, and Shunza would not probably make that prediction. Hey, you know, Why? we can look at... Because I, the- I kind of, yeah. I see what Dave's saying where that seems orthogonal to their position. Uh-huh. If you're purely selfish and it requires a lot of habitual training to be good, then it doesn't necessarily mean that studying it and reasoning about it will do the trick in the same way that it won't help me to study chess theory or free throw theory or you know piano theory. I actually just need to do it and do it and do it until it just becomes second nature. Uh, yeah, so that's not... Exactly, Shinza's view, because uh, I think he, I think he does think that there's an important role for reflection in that process. But um, but it is uh, close close to his view. I do think that ultimately their views are views about moral development. So Mengzi compares moral development to cultivating a sprout, right? So the sprout basically almost wants to become a, a mature plant, and what it needs to do is it needs to have an, a nurturing environment that will allow it to to grow into its uh, natural, what it has the natural capacity to do. Whereas Shinza compares moral development to straightening a board by pressing it against uh, a straightening rod, right? So you steam it and press it against metal and that straightens the board, right? So there's this kind of, for Mengzi, moral development is about turning your attention inward, finding those natural reactions and letting them grow and cultivating them. Whereas for Shunza, it's about turning outward, finding standards outside of yourself and then kind of forcing yourself to comply to those standards. So they really are um, sort of developmental claims about getting whether or not first order desires are there already from early on without, without, much effort. That's right. I mean, you know, Piaget was came from that same. He, you know, he was a zoologist, about biologist. Yeah. So his view of how the child morally develops was that it unfolds like the development of a tree. Yeah. And that given just a normal environment, the child would proceed to to become a Kantian, <laughs> highest form of being, <laughs> the highest form is like right where you can join Kant and, G- and Jesus and I think there are I think they're also children and not masturbate. <laughs> I think there are also synchronic predi- predictions that come out really interestingly in the li- the historical literature on genocide. For me, I guess another kind of striking thing that I was looking into at the time that I started getting interested in ethics professors, which I saw as intimately connected with this debate between uh, Menschus and Shinza, um, was Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler, Hitler's Willing Executioners. Right. So Goldhagen's book has is controversial in a variety of ways, and I think there are some legitimate criticisms of it. But really at the core, I think there's a pretty interesting claim that it makes uh, a case for that I don't know if it's totally convinced if i'm totally convinced by it but it's uh it's pretty striking and worth thinking about uh which is this group of men from hamburg were drafted 
Remember, they didn't volunteer to be Nazis. They were drafted into this group called Police Battalion 101. They were sent to Poland, and with very little training, they were told, okay, go kill these villages full of Jews. And in fact, they were given the opportunity to decline to participate in these actions. Um, and very few of them availed themselves of that, that opportunity. Uh, they seem to have willingly gone ahead and killed Jews. Uh, there are various, there's various reasons to think that they didn't feel a huge amount of um, desire to get out of that. So, for example, there was a uh, at one point there was a transfer was, uh, request was sent to Police Battalion 101. Um, there was an opportunity to serve in I think it was a communications unit, not a frontline unit. Uh, the men could apply to transfer to that unit. I think only two applied to transfer to this communication unit uh, out of the unit that was doing the genocidal killing. And so, and one of the interesting things about this uh, about this police battalion is in the 60s, their, le- their leadership was uh, brought under trial. And so these men were asked to testify, uh, and there's this long uh, court record of their testimony about uh, their involvement in uh, killing Jews in Poland. And one of the striking things about the testimony that uh, Goldhagen points out is that very few of them said that they saw the men around them being opposed to killing Jews. Um, they tended to say, oh, well, I was opposed, right? But Goldhagen makes a plausible case that you know, if you're being, uh, if you're in court in 1960 Germany, you're probably going to say that automatically. <laughs> so the really the more important thing is what do they say about their perception of the other people in the unit? And generally, they did not uh, say that they saw other people being strongly opposed. And there's so it, yeah. so his conclusion is there's something like rotten about Germans. So that's the controversial <laughs> conclusion is like what do you conclude about Germans about this or what's their worldview? Um, but we can pull back from that a little bit and turn it into, I think, the a question that on which uh, Mengzi and Shunzi would disagree, right? So, I think what Mengzi would say, Menchus would say about this is, sorry, I keep flipping between saying Mengzi and Menchus. I think <laughs> Mengzi would say, look, you know, if these guys stopped and they thought about what they're doing, like here I am going and I am just killing these, you know, say, elderly people, women, children, non-combatants. Right? I'm walking out of the forest and I'm shooting them in the head. They would, if they thought about it, they would find themselves morally revolted by it. Right? And that would be a universal human reaction. And there's something kind of, to me, kind of intuitively compelling about that idea. But Goldhagen says, no, they weren't revolted. They didn't, you know, maybe they were disgusted viscerally by blood and guts. But on Goldhagen's view, they thought it was perfectly fine. They thought it was perfectly moral. They were not revolted by it. They went ahead and did it voluntarily. They didn't require a lot of pressure. They didn't take uh, opportunities to decline to do it. What about the Goering, you know, the, the famous passages where he talks, where he gives speeches about overcoming your... Yeah, Himmler, I think. You know, empathy and revulsion to do your duty as a German. Yeah, so the Nazis are very concerned about... Um, people not wanting to perpetrate the genocide, right? So they gave speeches like that. And in most cases, the people who worked in the concentration camps or in the Einsatzgruppen, which were people who wandered around behind enemy lines and did a lot of killing, they generally chose people who were volunteers, who were very uh, Nazi. Uh, They didn't think ordinary people would do it. They they, They thought maybe that they would need to get special people and inspire them. But Goldhagen's point is, well, you didn't really need – you could just do it with random draftees and not even give them much pressure and they'd still do it, right? Right. 
so this is but this is the claim that I I find sort of a, a little questionable uh, the the little pressure claim and mm. you know the, to bring my social psychology roots to the to the right. table like it seems as if you can drastically underestimate the social pressure that would be present you know like like <clears throat> you might say well no one was actively trying to transfer out but they could but really you know I mean there's so much to to be said about the sorts of pressure that don't that right. aren't overt. Right. Yeah. So the other, um, making excuses for Nazis, <laughs> this is so typical. I can't even tell you. <laughs> the, other, the other well-known treatment of police battalion 101 by Robert Browning is, uh, I think Robert's his first name. Anyway, Browning, uh, has more of that line in it. Right. So that's, uh, one of the disputes, uh, in the interpretation of literature is how much, how much weight should we put on these kind of more subtle pressures? And the Milgram, right? I mean, isn't that the whole point of Milgram and that's part of Stanford Prison right. experiment? Part of what inspired the, them, yeah. But look, yeah. you know, so the so, the social pressure in this case is like you know being embarrassed in front of your peers for being a Jew lover. But but that's not. I mean, that's that's strawmanning a little bit, right? I mean, there's like pressure that you would that, for instance, you you might not get the candy that you get for killing a Jew. No, just kidding. Um, that you might not get. <laughs> You get no Jew killing candy. That's going on the or, next mashup. That's <laughs> but but that but it is very real pressure that you would you know I mean imagine the lore of the Alamo battle is that you know uh, whoever the guy there was drew the line in the sand and said anybody can step over it if you want to go home and uh, no, nobody except for the one guy who told the story did and it's it, I mean there it's just like I mean you could say that well it's because they didn't want to be mocked. Um, but there's very real pressure, like for you know that you're in the military. This is this is you know you, they might but suspect it's not fighting you of at the being Alamo. Disloyal. It's killing little kids. I mean that is the part that's so you Abs- know having just been to a to Eastern Europe and Ellie Wazell's house growing up, and they have like a little monument there. You look at it and it doesn't make sense, you know, and especially with the children because that's the one that tugs at the heart so much. You know, it's one thing when you're on the battlefield and you're facing somebody at war. It's another thing when you're just rounding up little kids and slaughtering them and killing them. Uh, this is obviously true. I mean, these are horrible atrocities that, that are committed during wartime by soldiers since since we've had soldiers. Yeah. But, but I don't know that there's this. I think that, that Americans in Vietnam did the same thing all the time. And it's probably like, you know. There's some slippery slope that gets you there that we, the, you know, I take it that the whole point of Milgram and Zimbardo was to say, you know, they're there before the grace of God go I. Like anybody's capable of this. I agree with that. Even the most reflective. Conclusions about the Germans in particular, I think that's one thing that <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't particularly accept is that you know, he thought that they just had this unusually toxic ideology that drove them to this. Was that his? I, I I never read the book, but was that the view that it was an unusually toxic ideology yes. rather than like an evil gene or something right. like that? He thought it was the uh, he, they had an unusually toxic, virulent, uh, aggressive, intellectually accepted form and emotionally accepted form of anti-Semitism that made them want to do this, and that's that cultural fact about them. He doesn't think it's their personality or something like that. This brings us back to, though, your particular studies, because 
I bet you that in Germany the rates of returning library books is pretty pretty damn high. <laughs> I bet you they return them like you know exactly on time. Like they take the due date to mean like a normative. Like they get on the train and that gets them right to the library right when it's supposed to. So I wanted to think about whether from kind of from a mention perspective, right? Like there's something to me that's kind of compelling. Like if you stopped and you thought philosophically with your best resources, there you are in Poland, police battalion 101, you've got, you know, Kant's critique in your the second critique in your back pocket, right? You're like, so, you know, what yeah. do you think that, that like stopping and thinking you'd find something, anyone, any normal person would find something that's like incredibly revolting about just walking into the forest and shooting a girl in the head. You know, there's something to me that really th- thinks that, you know, so, and, but it doesn't seem like uh, philosophy professors were any particularly more likely than anyone else to, to reject Nazism. Of course, Heidegger is a famous case of a philosophy, philosopher who embraced Nazism. Uh, He's never going to hear the end of that. No. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, all right, I'm sorry, but Jesus, let it go. You fuck one sheep. <laughs> Moral reflection, you know, can it get you out of committing genocide? Can it, can it? help turn you into a better person you know what's the role of philosophy in particular in this right maybe there's something special about philosophical reflection spend a lot of time thinking about moral issues like ought to work their way toward the moral truth on those issues and then be motivated to act out those truths and thus act a little morally better and that's definitely a, a, a operating assumption in a lot of normative ethics, right? I mean, that otherwise, what are we doing this for? <laughs> that otherwise, we're just playing games, which we ought, way too often are. But, um, but, but the goal is that this will actually have an effect, uh, improving moral behavior. And given what you found, what do you take to be the implications of that? Well, my general finding has been that ethicists do not behave morally better than socially similar similar comparison groups of professors not specializing in ethics. But how exactly to interpret that is, I think, still an open question. So I don't have a single uh, final conclusion that I draw from that. So there's a couple of of questions that you might have about the interpretation. Uh, And one of them is, one is that these, many of these measures are either not moral in the sense that many people think or that they rely on some sort of self-report or peer report. The other is what to make of the of a, a null finding. Right. So, but but let's give some right. examples. Here are the ones that strike me as as not necessarily being anything that I would I would consider a moral issue, like be being a member of your academic association, right. membership in one's main academic disciplinary society. <laughs> you actually have eating meat here, but you 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 yourself. You guys all suck at this. Well, he's not an ethicist, technically. He's more of a philosopher of mind. They're they're like worse than Germans. (laughs) Um, Leaving behind cups and trash in conference meeting rooms. Actually, a lot of this stuff is is things that I would consider just inconsiderate, at at least at the level of manners. But I I did want to give you a little bit of pushback on the the genocide to leaving your cup behind connection here. (laughs) Because given how you've talked about it and, you know, your invocation of the book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, and then we're talking about like closing a door during a conference talk or talking during a really boring philosophy talk. In what sense 
are those even in the same category rather than two completely different questions about human nature? I do agree there's a big difference between littering and perpetrating genocide. <laughs> there's some of the measures we used were are pretty substantial moral behaviors on some people's counts, right? Not certainly some, most of them are minor uh, and chosen because they're easy to measure. But, you know, giving a substantial portion of one's income to charity is on a lot of people's view a pretty substantial moral. And we do we did analyze rates of membership in the Nazi party, um, which was, I think, a pretty substantial moral decision that a lot of German professors had to make in the 1930s. So those two are pretty non-trivial. Also, eating meat, some people think is a really important moral decision. You know, there can be disagreements about that, obviously. I do also think that just everyday courtesy, like not leaving behind rubbish at your seat, is an important aspect of morality, right? Any one particular act of that kind is no big deal, right? But a pattern of behaving in an inconsiderate way to the people around you is, I think, in some total, uh, non-trivial moral failing. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so, but the, but the large, the large pattern then of, of, um, your, findings is no no real difference between ethicists and other philosophers so yeah do you, do you think this this defeats the claim that that reflection is doing anything i mean you know one claim could be that that reflection has led people to to just conclude something differently about their duty um did you mm-hmm. a, do you ask people what their moral views on those behaviors are we did for some of the behaviors yeah so and what we generally found was that ethicists had more demanding moral views than the uh, comparison groups of other professors. So let me give you an example. I think the most striking example of what I just said is the data on eating meat, right? So we, Josh Rust and I sent a survey out to professors in five U.S. states, right? Philosophers, uh, both ethicists and non-ethicists, and then a comparison group of other professors at those same universities. And we asked in the first part of the survey, we asked a number of questions about their moral views. And in the second part of the survey, we had, we asked for them to self-report their behavior on some of the same issues on those same issues. And then on some of the issues, we also had direct observational evidence about their behavior. So we could compare their self-reported moral view with their self-reported behavior with their observed behavior. Now, on the, on the vegetarianism or meat-eating question, we didn't have uh, direct observational evidence. Um, I've got a cool idea for a study <laughs> that will involve that, but I haven't yet managed to. Uh, but the self-report data on the vegetarianism question are already pretty interesting. Right? So we have this – most of our uh, moral questions, we gave people a nine-point scale to respond on. We asked uh, about particular types of moral behavior. In this, in this one case, it was – regularly eating the meat of mammals, such as beef or pork. And then we had the response was on a nine-point scale from one being very morally bad, five was marked morally neutral, and nine was marked very morally good. Uh, So we had respondents then rating regularly eating the meat of uh, mammals, such as beef or pork, on this scale. What we found was 60% 60% of the ethics professors rated it somewhere on the bad side of the scale. 45% of the professors, in, of the philosophers not specializing in ethics, 
uh, rated it on the bad side of the scale. And for the professors in departments other than philosophy, it was in the high teens somewhere, 17 or 19, something like that. So a pretty big difference in moral opinion. And then in the self-report measure of the scale later, we asked, did you eat the meat of a mammal at your last evening meal, not including snacks? Uh, and we gave them yes or no or don't recall. Very few people chose don't recall. And there we found no statistically significant difference among the three groups. So we had this big difference in moral opinion, but not much difference in self-reported meat-eating behavior the previous night. So my theory is that, <clears throat> that ethicists do it because it's naughty. <laughs> oh, this is so bad. <laughs> Look, I'm having some bacon. Yeah. I need to be punished. Um, <laughs> but it is it is striking that you know there's a there's this I'm sure you're familiar but um all the literature on on moral licensing and so one oh Tamler just decided to walk away. I thought you were just going to get a meat snack. <laughs> I got a little aroused because it's so bad. <laughs> Slap me with the bacon. So there is an account that, that uh, you know, there are these set of findings in, in the social psychological literature that that when you when you do one good thing, you're sort of licensing yourself to do another bad thing. Like you, you have a sort of line of moral credit. And maybe ethicists just walk around being so good that um, they let themselves do things like eat meat and and drive SUVs and say no to organ donation. Um, yeah. Or at least they think they're doing so so much. But the other view could be that they're just really much better at rationalizing. Um, right. And that's what allows them to, to do these things. I find those are, to me, two of the most attractive possible explanations. Right. Well, the simplest you. explanation is that all of this moral theorizing is just completely causally inert. has nothing to do with your actual behavior. Right. So the rational tail and the emotional or the intuitive dog. Right. So it's just right. you're going to do what you're going to do. Right? And then you got this you wave around these theories after the fact. And Hyde has cited um, Josh and my, my work as supportive of his thesis there. And, and that right. I think that's the, the simplest interpretation, but it's not actually the one that I favor, um, partly because I think there's something attractive about the kinds of views that you just described in moral licensing uh, and rationalization views. And I think maybe some other um, possible approaches as well. Then, I actually think that I fall, yeah. fall prey to the moral rationalization. People ask me, you know, oh, you study moral stuff. Does that mean that you're a better person? And I actually think that it just makes me feel less bad about doing really bad things. Yeah. So it does seem like it's so here. So here's one possibility. I don't think all of the empirical evidence is entirely consistent with this, right? But it's um, but one possibility is you have two forces that are approximately counterbalancing, right? One is the good thing, what I call the booster view, right? This is the view that when you reflect philosophically or morally, you discover what's morally right. And then you're like, yeah, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> and then you do it and you behave better than you otherwise would have, right? That's the booster view. That's kind of what's supposed to be going on, right? Can we so that might be a case in which moral reflection leads to moral improvement, but there might be a, a counterbalancing um, force, which would, which I would call toxic rationalization. And I would distinguish between two kinds of rationalization here. One would be inert rationalization where you do what you're going to do anyway, but now you got a cover story, right? Toxic rationalization would be 
you know, you're kind of tempted to take that library book, but you wouldn't really have done it. And then you think, whoa, you know what? I can concoct a really good utilitarian justification for this. And then once you've got that nice justification in hand, you take the book. Right. So you actually behave morally worse. And let's just assume that the justification is bogus, right? Right. Right. So in that case, moral reflection actually leads you away from the moral truth and leads you to behave morally worse than you otherwise would, right? So if the if and sometimes it helps you morally and sometimes it harms you morally, right? right you might on average end up behaving about the same. The interesting new data that you have with Fiery, I, I think, is actually speaks to this uh, and is more distressing to me. <laughs> so because it seems to it seems as if ethicists could always say, well, look, you know, it's not. Just because we're thinking about the thing doesn't mean, you know, you might even have an explicit normative view that's, or a view about ethics that says that, that reasoning isn't what drives behavior anyway. With the, with fiery, you show that philosophers are just as prone to making cognitive errors or errors in their reasoning. And that, that's a little distressing because that's the very moral reasoning, right? So the framing effects and. Yeah. 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 You know, so it could just be philosophers or people. <laughs> we seem like gods to the, out, to the outside world, but we're actually just human beings deep, deep down. You know, you know, I remember showing up for my first philosophy class as an undergraduate and was taught by John Dupre. And he got up there in front of the class. And, you know, I, I don't know what kind of image I had of a philosopher. But he wasn't it. I was just like, John Dupre, he's just this normal guy. He's stepped outside and he's smoking a cigarette. And, you know, what kind of philosopher is that? <laughs> but anyway, um, it does look like so far what Fiery Cushman and I have found is that philosophers, including ethicists, including ethicists talking about issues in their very own areas of specialization, seem to show just the same size framing effects and order effects and, and kind of these seemingly irrational biases as other people, right? So to the extent, if that generalizes, right, we've only done a few experiments and a few different types of reasoning, but, um, you know, to the extent that generalizes, that undercuts the response that an ethicist might have, which is, well, you know, we, we're no good at moral behavior, but, you know, we're good at moral reasoning. That, that's what we're really great at, Um you know, there hasn't been a lot of systematic study of how good philosophers actually are at moral reasoning. Um, but, you know, so far the data we've got doesn't suggest that they're, they're much better than anyone else. It's suggestive that that bothers David more than the fact that it's not influencing the behavior. But that's I mean, the that's thing the, that really troubles him. And this a, is because David is a Kantian. And one thing that I want to at least make explicit is how does this, how does all your work show that Kant is a horrible <laughs> philosopher and human being and that his influence on moral philosophy has been pernicious and scandalous in every way? I think that's just a priori obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Self-evident. Yeah. Uh, after the second critique, even Kant had to admit it. You know, I mean, I actually think Kant is a kind of interesting example in some ways, right? So, one of the so Kant's best-known moral philosophy is all very abstract, right? It's act on that maxim that you can at the same time will to be universal law, right? He gives a few examples about you know shopkeepers and the guy hiding in your basement, but he doesn't really think of too much about particular concrete examples. 
But one of his later works, Metaphysics and Morals, not to be mistaken with the groundwork for the Metaphysics and Morals, he does go through and he he gives this kind of, this is how my moral theory applies to these various cases. And, you know, sometimes he says some good stuff, but, you know, other times it seems way off base and the reasoning seems really bad, right? So, you know, Kant has these horrible arguments, again, you know, about how masturbation, for example, is this terrible thing that in certain respects is worse than murder and, you know, that... A wife who runs away from a husband, even an abusive husband, should be returned to the husband. You know, of course, the husband should be nice, right? But, you know, the, really the wife is kind of the husband's property. And it's, you know, it's okay if you murder bastards because they're kind of born outside of the state. And, you know, like this strange stuff that doesn't seem very well reasoned. You know, so here's one of the most famous philosophers in all of history, right? And he's coming up with these really bad arguments for these really noxious positions, right? So, and if you know, Kant can't reason well about morality. You know, what hope do the rest of us have? Does that satisfy I mean, you? I don't know how facetious you are in saying that, but like <laughs> he didn't reason well about his philosophy and his abstract philosophy either. Right. I mean, you know, the arguments for the categorical imperative are also really bad. I am inclined to agree with that, but I think that's a harder case to make and a, a it's more self-evident when you read his stuff on masturbation and bastards and things like that. Then it's, you know, the, the concreteness of those arguments, I think, makes it easier for us to see the poor quality of the reasoning. Did you ask ethicists how much they matter? <laughs> I did not ask that. <laughs> I mean, there's the finding, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> this is this is what this is just crying out. The study writes itself. The paper writes itself. <laughs> What's the prediction you, uh, about how? No, we can work on a collaboration on this. So. The the prediction is just that they feel more guilty. I think <laughs> no grandmas. I, I still think that it's 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 totally uh, obligatory to masturbate on my ethical theory. Yeah, so it's interesting to look at some of these old arguments uh, against masturbation, right? You know, from. Uh, kind of the perspective of uh, liberal enthusiastic masturbators <laughs> from uh, uh, <laughs> a certain kind of liberal perspective, right? You look at those arguments and you think, wow, those are pretty different than the arguments that people might come up with these days, right? So it's an interesting kind of test case for how the, um, the moral arguments change over time. You know, Josh Green who we give a lot of shit to for never coming on our podcast, but um, he he made this point about Kant in the paper, The Secret Joke of Kant's Soul, which is the, the Nietzschean idea that he just came up in language that the common person couldn't understand, uh, ways to confirm all their prejudices at the time. And, you know, that was one of them, right? And then right. the attitudes about bastard children, the attitudes about uh, – what, what were some of the other ones you had in that great comp bashing Oh, uh, organ donation is really bad also <laughs> on Kant's view. The bastard children one was uh, – seemed especially egregious. Yeah. That's the little German in him coming out. <laughs> Kill the children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He actually thought it was wrong to be a bastard? No, he, he argues – so I haven't refreshed myself on this recently, so I, I might be missing or slightly mis- misstating some of it. But my recollection is that he says that some bastard children are born outside of the law, and so they don't have the protection of the law. And so 
uh, it's okay to kill them. Now, did he have a f- <laughs> full theory of of being a bastard in the same way that you have a theory of jerks? How's that for a segue? Uh, well, not that I'm aware of. Because <laughs> maybe it, he just meant like you bastard know, in the more colloquial sense of, you know, he's a, that, that bastard, Roger Goodell or something We'll have to like check that. the like original. If, if, if it's just killing Roger Goodell, then that's fine. <laughs> He had a theory. It turns out bat- being a bastard is transmitted through the mother's side. <laughs> like, oh, I don't um, know. So I got to give then shit to Tamler because Tamler is a self-avowed hater of any theories. Um, and w- in reading your paper on jerks, I thought this is a nice little tight, you know, focus. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting. Let's let's lead off with that because I like I think theorizing in philosophy is a problem. You know, 75% of the time you're trying to come up with necessary and sufficient conditions for something that just don't have them. And it, it's my favorite new phrase that Valerie Tiberius told me, epicyclic engineering is what it ends up being. <laughs> but in, I, I didn't get the sense that that's what you were up to. It's not that you were trying to come up with a counterexample free theory of what a jerk was you were doing something that i actually support when it comes to theories <laughs> oh good what were you trying to do why why did you want to come up with a theory for jerks i don't know why i wanted to come up with a theory i just hmm that's interesting yeah <laughs> you just take it for granted well we're philosophers <laughs> did we come up with theories did that's what we do I mean, you do engage in a little bit of that in the essay, yeah. right, of, like, why you're doing this. I guess one of the things that I've been really interested in is moral self-knowledge. Like, how do you know your own moral character? And I tend to be a skeptic about that. I think we don't have – tend to have very good knowledge of our own moral character. And I thought you know, there's a particular type of moral character who is especially poor at self-knowledge, uh, and that's the jerk. So that's, I guess, part of my entry into it. Why don't you state your, your view of what exactly a jerk is? I, I really like this piece. So um, in my view, a jerk is someone who culpably fails to appreciate the perspectives of other people around them, treating those other people as tools to be manipulated or fools to be dealt with rather than uh, moral and epistemic peers. You know, so the jerk is someone who... So, yeah, but it I, is a... A sort of ignorance that they're cul- they are culpably ignorant of the way in which other That's people right. might be feeling. Right. So you don't see the other people around you as uh, it's a kind of moral ignorance and a kind of epistemic ignorance. Right. So you're ignorant of uh, what you owe to those people, and you're ignorant of uh, what those people, when they differ from you in their opinions, uh, what kind of validity they might have in their perspective that's uh, contrary <laughs> to yours. In what sense is it culpable ignorance? Well, I wanted to make sure that it was culpable ignorance because I didn't want it to be the case that babies are jerks. They are. <laughs> they, might, they might be very ignorant of other people around them, but not in any culpable way, right? Or people with uh, severe uh, um, mental disabilities, right? So it's essentially somebody who doesn't have disabilities or who isn't an infant. That's that's the what you need to get to culpability. On, on this. Right. That was the main um, reason that I inserted the, the culpably. Um, I guess there's another reason, right? You can also justifiably uh, fail to respect the uh, or appreciate the perspective of people around you if they if their perspective really does not deserve to be appreciated, right? So, you know, I might not appreciate the perspective of a neo-Nazi. 
right? But I'm not, I'm not culpably failing to do that. It's just that that perspective does not merit respect. But even at a neo-Nazi uh, conference gathering, you would collect your cups. <laughs> close the door quietly. <laughs> no, you know, I think I'd probably, I'd probably leave my cups behind just to show them. Taught him. And on the opposite end of the spectrum is the sweetheart. Right. Who bends over backwards to understand the perspective of other right, people. Right, yeah. Right. Sometimes even going too far. Yeah, right. Right. You make a claim in the paper that I thought was interesting, and it's probably true that some sort of social movements probably need a certain percentage, at least, of jerks to really provide the energy and the fuel for the movement. And if everybody's a sweetheart, if you take the perspective and get in the head of the people, I mean, this relates to what we were talking about earlier with the, you know, with the Milgram stuff and the, the Hitler's willing executioners, like you can get in the head of Hitler or a Nazi or, and, and you can sort, sort of try to see things from their point of view. And that might lessen the motivation to act in a way that really changes it. So, right. yeah, sometimes that kind of jerk tends to have a kind of bold self certainty <laughs> that can be right. really useful in certain contexts, right? And if their self certainty is about moral issues and they're right about those moral issues, um, which I think sometimes if you're a jerk, it's just a matter of luck whether you're right. <laughs> but you can get right, right, you can be right, right? And then, you know, and then that decisive self certainty can be really compelling and empowering compared to the person who's too far to the sweetheart side who says, oh, well, those people on the other side, I kind of see their point of view. We don't want to be too mean to them. You know, why don't we? There's all kinds of jerks that we value highly. I mean, Steve Jobs was famously a jerk. The best people can muster to say about him is that he wasn't always a jerk. Um, but it was just that jerkiness, that insensitivity to the feelings of others mm -hmm. that seemed to allow him to produce great products because, you know, he had no problem just telling right. they were stupid or having like right. six-year-olds in china work in his factories it's just like it's called your work plur aren't you guys <laughs> there can be a kind of power to the jerk but there's also also i think you know most jerks go wrong because if you don't attend to the perspective of other people around you then you're lacking a really important source of knowledge about the world and self-knowledge what would you – so if I want to figure out if I'm a jerk, what exactly – what do you recommend? I would like to say that Tamler is one of those jerks, you know, that, that because of his jerkiness, this podcast exists. Yeah, I'm like Steve Some, Jobs. <laughs> I don't think that there is uh, any particularly wonderful method for this. But I think one method that's that might be – a step in the right direction and an important contributor uh, to self-knowledge that we underestimate is looking at other people, right? So if you look at other people um, and you think that you're surrounded by, you know, fools and idiots and people who aren't any good at uh, things and other jerks, right? If everyone you look at seems like, you know, an unworthwhile person in one way or another, then that says something the odds that you're actually surrounded by all these people who aren't really worth your attention and time seem pretty low, right? Probably that's something about you that is manifesting in your judgments about others. So I guess I think mm -hmm. and it's an important source of self-knowledge to kind of catch yourself maybe after the fact, right? If you prep yourself in advance, like, oh, I'm going to have nice, you know, I want to see if I'm a jerk. So, so I'm going to, you know, think about how I think about the people you might 
prep yourself to have good judgments. But if you can catch yourself kind of after the fact, how do you think about those people who are in front of you in the post office line? Are they a bunch of, you know, fools or who are wasting your time and really you gotta, why are you wait? Why are you waiting here? You know, behind all these idiots, right? Uh, If that's the kind of thinking that you have and you catch yourself with that kind of thought a lot about people, I think that's one of the more reliable signs I'm inclined to think. Right. It's it's almost like if you're not a, if you're not a jerk, your base rate of, the jerks in the world should be should be undershot. <laughs> yeah, from the sweetheart uh, perspective, would be you know everyone you meet seems so nice and wonderful and full of good ideas and interesting projects and right if that's how you know everyone you meet seems so wonderful and nice right then that's maybe a sign about you <laughs> right that you got that sweetheart perspective on the world yeah. So what do you think about academics? Because, you know, you, I'm, you're on Facebook. Where we have a lot of the same friends, and, and this is true of Dave, too. You get a lot of this, the whole country is full of idiots, the whole, you know, this is like everybody's a, a total moron, <laughs> and also a lot of self-righteous sanctimony about not only are they morons, but they're also greedy and selfish, and they don't care about other people. Is that a sign that... Fifty percent of my academic <laughs> colleagues are jerks. Yeah, that kind of the Facebook environment is a little different from the face-to-face environment. It brings out something in people um, that might be specific to Facebook. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure how much that transfers over to real-world interactions. Maybe it does. You should be. We should all be worried that we're jerks. <laughs> Um, and, and if you're not worried at all, then it's a positive sign of being a jerk that you're not worried. Right. But also I think, you know, some people are just like, yeah, I'm a jerk. So what? And some of them, you know, in fact are jerks when they say that. So I prefer, I guess that kind of jerk (laughs) most of the time. You mean like just the Bostonian? Yeah. The Bostonian about sports. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We think the whole world revolves around us. And it does. And fuck all of you. And that's the way we feel. You know, we're not trying to pretend <laughs> anything else. And some of those people, they say that. Not but then, you know, actually, they're really nice. Right. So it's like, totally. I think it's they're like all very nice. Kind of zero correlation. You can almost make no predictions at all. Like some of the people who say they're jerks are really nice, you know, or, or think that they're be- worried that they're being jerks. Right. And some people are like, yeah, you know what? They're right. Well, I I think that really what we are waiting on is what neuroscience. Yeah, that's going to settle there's this. A, <laughs> there's the jerk node in there somewhere. It's got to be discovered. It's near the temporal parietal junction, it, I think. It, and you know, if you exactly. put like a little oxytocin in the air, then I think people's jerkiness I, recedes in exact proportion. I like to snort oxytocin <laughs> in my office. Like, that's get the first that, time I've gotten that right. That I always, that, I always uh, like use some combination of oxytocin and oxycontin in, in like and make it like a word that doesn't exist. Oh, I thought you were saying that you combine them to snort. I was yeah, like, that, that would be you're awesome. Man. Oxytocin yeah. into, into and stuff. Is this what's going on? I, I if I can score some, absolutely. Except I, I would like to say at this point that that I think we've come full circle, but we have to we have. After this conversation, we know that jerking off is good. And being a jerk is bad. And, uh, go uh, uh, after we conclude. I'm going to go be one of those or do one of them. The lead into the joke was probably a little extended, but the payoff the payoff was, was good. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Eric. It was great to have you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was fun.
Yeah, thanks, Eric. All right, and join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.